Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the e-commerce insights podcast. I'm your host, Scott DeGrossier, founder and CEO of Wicker Reports. Today I have a friend and somewhat of a guru in the industry in a couple different facets. So I'm very happy to talk to him today. Scott Brinker. How you doing, Scott? Uh, I'm good. Uh, careful throwing around that guru <laughs> word. Uh, you know, I didn't start calling you names. So you know. <laughs> but it's great like to start with like compliments, <laughs> then dig into the nitty gritty. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you are currently the VP of the platform ecosystem at HubSpot, yep. author of the book, Hacking Marketing. Guilty. blog over at chiefmartech.com. Yep. So these are all my uh, things. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's busy. That's a busy man. You know, off the top, I mean, I, I'm familiar with all those quite well. That's why I wanted you on. But a, a platform ecosystem, how, how would you describe that and what makes HubSpot's like unique in, compared to other ecosystems? I've been in the MarTech space here for... A long time, I guess, maybe arguably since it really started to take off, you know, and one of the things that was so wild about it is over the past 10 years, you just had this explosion of all these different apps, all these innovative things that people were creating, but they weren't really based around common platforms. It's like they each kind of lived in their own thing and maybe they connect with some APIs there or some APIs here. And so for a lot of marketers for years, what you kept hearing was, Yes, we love all these cool and exciting tools, but it is a royal pain in the ass to like get this stuff to work <laughs> together, you know. And so, yeah, my mission in joining HubSpot was to see, you know, can HubSpot help provide some coherence to at least some portion of that universe by really becoming a platform that these other apps could integrate with. That between us and the app partner, like we can figure out the technical wherewithal behind the scenes to pass the data and connect workflows and stuff like that. And then marketers, they could just get this stuff. It'll just work out of the box. And so, yeah, that's my that's my mission. The idea of an ecosystem would be, okay, these things kind of fit together. Like, I mean, in the ideal state, we're not there yet, but in the ideal state, kind of as easy as, you know, you've got your iPhone or your Android phone and you go to one of those stores and get a new app and it just plugs in and it just works. Like we should aspire for that. Mm -hmm. That's a good vision to, to hold. I mean, I'm a HubSpot, I'd say a power user. We use all, all the service, the service component a ton. We use the help docs. We have the website. We use the landing page. We, we use pretty much all of it, I would say. We love it. And then we also have a bunch of apps bolted on and you get used to the seamless experience and how nice and easy it is in HubSpot that the integrations kind of have to work that way or you, you get grouchy, set the bar <laughs> high. <laughs> well, that's so, the way it should be. And, and, and we love the Wicked Reports integration into HubSpot, uh, one of my favorites. So thank uh, you. Thank you for being a part of the community in that level too. Yeah, no, it's, it's been fantastic. So I browse, um, I'm a reader of the chiefmartech.com blog. And so I was prowling around there before you were going to be on thinking of things that really caught my eye that I thought the readers would like to, or the listeners, I should say, and readers would like to hear about. One that caught my eye, strategy, marketing, and technology are all intertwined. What got you to where you felt that this was true, which I agree with it also. And if marketers, like, is it an either or, either you get on this train or you're left behind or, or, or talk about that topic a little? Yeah, you pulled that one from the archives. That was a that was a few mm -hmm. years ago, you know, and it, it it was kind of right around when the Martech space was really starting to explode. And the nature of you know, it's it's like 
almost any business trend. It's like you get force in one way, you're going to get a counter reaction in the other. And so while there is this explosion of all this technology, there were a lot of thought leaders in the marketing space who like basically they, they felt they had to push back on that and say, no, 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 you know, don't this technology stuff. It's just terribly distracting. What you need to do is you need to have your strategy, come up with your strategy and then way down, you know, below that, you think about maybe the tools that support that strategy. And I wrote that post because I want to push back on that a little bit. I mean, it's not that, yeah, you should just go out and buy a random collection of tools and sit down and say like, oh, I wonder what I can make with these, a paper hat, an airplane. But it's the fact that technology has been changing so rapidly and innovations are coming from so many different directions right now that yes, it's important to have a strategy for your business and look for technology that can enable it. But I think we're also in a place where we have to keep our eye on some of these new technologies to inform like, wait a second, could there possibly be a better strategy, a different strategy, a new way of approaching this that just wasn't even possible? The technology environment in which we could define a strategy is changing. And so I was trying to just make the argument like, you know, yeah, yes, strategy is important. Other things being equal, you want your strategy and then the tools to support it. But if you aren't keeping a bit of an open mind to how a new generation of tools can change your strategy, you're probably missing out to a competitor. I would agree. One of our case study clients, one of them is a guy that sells lobsters online from Maine. And oh, nice. his, one of his strategies that works quite well is paid to get the traffic in to capture the lead, even though he's e-com. Then, you know, he'll email them immediately, particularly if they abandon a cart, but then text them after he sees they open the email. And that, that triple combo of things, which, you know, all takes some doing, works really well. I mean, he made a hundred grand on text in 30 days. <laughs> and he's not a tech guru. He's just a guy that says, hey, this is going to work. Um, let's go put this in. And then 100K later from, you know, from people just on their phone clicking, okay, I'll buy this lobster and have it delivered to my house at this date. So that's an interesting strategy that kind of fits with that whole story. Yeah. It's like that, that willingness to experiment to me really does separate the winners in modern marketing. It's like there, just that willingness to try something, you know, and now the technology exists that, I mean, hey, if you have an idea for something you want to try, they're probably is a way to actually try it. And again, it's not that all this stuff, you know, works out, but if you're in that mode where you're comfortable doing some low risk experiments to just try things, and then every now and again, like one out of five of those experiments, like suddenly hits gold, you're like, yeah, that's incredible. Uh, if you weren't willing to do that experimentation in the first place, you never uncover this. I'd agree. When I see a uh, campaign, it's, it's the 80-20 rule, one in five. It's Usually you'll have these big winners that you'll ride and ride in campaigns and then a bunch of them that just die out rather than getting discouraged with one or two go down. You got to assume, hey, I got to do 10 to try to make some money here. That's what I've well, seen. I don't think they say it much anymore because it's kind of just become known. But for a while, both the, like the CEO of Google and the CEO of Amazon, like in their annual reports, they would make a big deal about how many experiments their organizations were running in parallel and an insane amount and, and very much embracing the thing that like, yeah, we run thousands of experiments. Most of them don't work. <laughs> and we love this because out of running these thousands of experiments and uh, the majority of them that don't work, man, we find some absolute real winners. And so we just keep scaling that. It's true. 
Wow. I didn't realize that. So you had another post that I love, 14 rules for data-driven, not data-diluted marketing, which I thought the, the question, you know, in between the commas there, that was the key point, not data-diluted. And one was a, a fun one. A man with a watch knows what time it is. A man with two watches is never sure. Is that something you thought of or did you hear that? No, no, that's some, uh, some, some aphorism that predated me, but yeah, it felt appropriate. Again, you kind of pulled these from the archives, mm -hmm. you know, but yeah, at the time, you know, people generally had multiple analytics systems they still uh, do. in place around their <laughs> website and the numbers would never match up. I mean, they'd be close, but they'd always be like, yeah, there's a little bit off here, a little bit off there. You know, and there's, I mean, we could go into the technical reasons of why, why that happens, but yeah, people would get kind of obsessed with those mm -hmm. minor differences to it. And that was just one of like a series of like data myth or, or just sort of, I don't know, this is maybe my meta issue that I have with so many things. This is how it ties back to the, you know, strategy and tech post is I know it is human nature to want to put things black and white and say, this thing is wonderful. This thing is terrible. And the, you know, pick one, right? I mean, like, oh my goodness, like, you know, the whole US here is bifurcated into red teams and blue mm -hmm. teams. It's just crazy. But the reality is, yeah, I mean, it's, things aren't black and white. You know, there's this continuum of, yes, we want to be data driven. You know, there's a lot of great ways we can leverage data, you know, incredibly effectively. But there are also ways that we can take it too far and we can sort of make assumptions treating data as an oracle that, yeah, it just often isn't because of the fact that although we get good data, it's really hard to get all of the data of all of the world. And so you're always trying to triangulate between different data sets and then different experiences or points you're having qualitatively that sort of match up or don't match up with what the data is telling you and trying to figure out that balance between these. And if you're comfortable sort of like operating, you know, across a little bit of that ambiguity, I mean, you can use data incredibly effectively, but if you get dogmatic about it, I just, I, I found people would just like back themselves into quarters like, Yes, you're technically doing a correct data practice, but you were completely like, was that uh, the, the metaphor? I think I used in there, I stole from someone. It's like driving down the highway and your eyes are just totally fixated on the dashboard, <laughs> you know, and you're not looking outside the windshield oh, at all. Windshield. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that was back before, you know, we had our Teslas <laughs> that could do the driving for us. <laughs> I mean, now iOS 14 is going to hit and then the data is going to be even more, it's going to be more important to understand what you're looking at, what you can trust, what you can't. And so that that's only going to continue to be true. Because when people would, you know, when people sign up with reports, well, they've already got data in HubSpot. Then they have their Shopify sales. Then they got their Facebook and Google tales of the tape. Then they have Google Analytics, and yet they're still saying, "Hey, we need more data. We're coming to you." And then the first thing they do, "Hey, how come it doesn't match Facebook?" <laughs> like, well, if I was just going to create a nice pie chart of Facebook, this first of all would be a lot easier to do, and second of all, why would you pay us to do that? <laughs> I don't understand. So it, it was fascinating to me. What do you think about the impact that iOS 14 is going to have? Um, you, I don't know if you've been keeping track of the Apple Facebook wars and what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of in this broader category with, I mean, uh, it's a variation of obviously the, you know, third-party cookies going away too. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the visibility on data has been great, but I do feel that sometimes people have lost the plot. Like I've, 
-hmm. With all the power of, let me put in the context of third-party cookies, with all the power of third-party cookie targeting, I have been subjected to some god awful advertising <laughs> over there. I mean, it's just friggin' awful. It's terrible. You know, not only would I not click on it, but you know, I'm like, wow, whatever I do, I don't want to deal with that brand. And so it's like, yes, we've got challenges with data. Yes, this environment is changing. It's going to require us to rethink you know, some of the ways we measure things and you know, trigger off of it. But I still feel like for most companies, it's what's happening above the line there on, okay, well, what are we actually delivering in these messages? And then what happens after that first touch point and someone starts to come into our world? What do we do with them at that point? And how do we make that an incredible experience? I mean, like the example you were giving with the guy running the lobster out of Maine, it's like, yes, I'm sure this data matters to them on like how people are coming into, you know, the very top of that funnel. But like having the creativity to start to think like, okay, and here's how I you know make sure. And if they abandon here, I'm going to send this email. When this happens, I'm going to send this. I mean, there's no dependency on third-party cookies, you know, for executing that well. <laughs> and so I think I think it gets blown out of proportion as to the negative impact. And let's face it, if the upside of it, and this is obviously the hypothesis, some of these companies doing this, the you know the upside is actually if consumers feel safer in the way in which they're engaging with things, you know, that the cultural shift around privacy and what expectations are there. Marketers, I kind of feel like our job is pretty easy. It's like at the end of the day, we want to make the consumer happy. You know, consumers say, this is what I want. And we're like, okay, if that's what you want, let's give it to you. <laughs> you know, and if you can execute that well, it, it, it kind of works. You know, it's going to affect Facebook stats are going to be more pessimistic or delayed, but it almost reverts us back to 2016, 17 in terms of the Facebook reporting, where it's still going to be a great traffic source. It's just not going to be a great reporting source. Like all, all the people are still there. They're still going to click on things. And if you give them good ads and what they want, like you said, then they're still going to buy. It's just going to be harder to necessarily detect that. <laughs> so it'll be reason, reasonable impact, but not, not the sky hasn't fallen, just some drama. Always change in marketing. I mean, think about, you know, I didn't mention the, the get-go, but you're not the curator anymore, are you, of that massive tech landscape? How do you even fit all those icons onto that? I mean, yeah, so you I, have, I have been. Uh, I'm actually, <laughs> uh, to be honest, uh, I haven't done it this year yet. And I'm thinking I may actually take a year off just because two things are true. One, actually, back of the envelope, I keep track of the growth in the industry and it has grown. Like last year, it was 8,000 solutions on that landscape. If we were going to do it this year, I'm quite certain it would be over 10,000. And like just the work involved in validating each one of those, you know, much less than harvesting the logos and getting, it just, it's a ton of work. Like the one last year was like, we had a team of nine of us, you know, for like three months on that. And at this point, I'm kind of like, sure, I could, we could do a four month project to put together another one of these. But at this point, I'm not sure that anyone would get any more value. out. It's sort of like, listen, the software landscape and marketing is huge. It's not shrinking anytime soon. It doesn't really matter if it's 8,000 or 10,000 or 20,000. It's more than you're going to be able to evaluate yourself. And so you just need to start to come up with other strategies of how you approach tapping into this incredible engine of innovation and marketing technology. Now, with all this, all that MarTech and then HubSpot's this like hub for the customers that use HubSpot, they have all their data, you know, piping in there. What do you guys think about and how do you try to translate all this data into insights for the customers? Yeah, see, that's where I think there's a lot 
of opportunity. We've got some reporting capabilities that are built into HubSpot. We're mm-hmm. you know, constantly working to improve them, but it just feels like the state of what's possible in analytics and data science at this point in time, like that frontier is just moving uh, so fast as well too, that frankly, yeah, this is actually, you know, I- I'm not pandering to you. It's one of the reasons I'm very happy Wicked Reports is in the <laughs> I take pandering. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you pander. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, because, you know, the people people need more sophistication on these things. And it really, I, right, I'm preaching to the choir. It's a full-time job, like specializing in that field. So, yeah, I, it's actually one of the reasons why I think the ecosystem strategy is so important to HubSpot is HubSpot can be a great platform, Mm. but there are so many things that people want to do, you know, on top of it, like one company can't do all of it. (laughs) And I think it's really, you know, we we live in a world here where these alliances, of okay, it's not having one company that does it all. What matters is, is you have a collection of companies, you know, that working in concert together can deliver something amazing and they can make that experience as seamless as possible for their mutual customer. I think that's where the game is in this new crazy exploding SaaS environment that we're all operating in. Yeah, I found, you know, I put 20,000 hours into marketing attribution I calculated, which is more than anyone should. <laughs> it just well, thank goodness you did it, right? Because then we can all benefit yeah. from your 20,000 hours. <laughs> well, it, it's true. So, and I finally have distilled everything down to, so we're, we're publishing in, a, in about a week or so, all these playbooks. I finally got it simple enough where my support team has validated it. And now all the users is like, Ask, read this list of questions. You know, we'll have like different questions per report is what we decided. Is this what you, is this why you're looking at this report? You're trying to answer this? All right, here are the steps. So then rather, because otherwise, you know, they see data and then they poke around and then they eventually can get there, but it's better just to like sharpen the focus right at the start. What's the whole point of why you logged in? Well, I want to, you know, see how marketing's doing. Well, what does that mean? There's so much to that question. Are you looking at lead gen? Are you looking at the bottom of the funnel? Is it for, you know, all the different things that we try to help people with? So that for me was a big eye-opening thing to say, well, once you get the solution of the data, that's when the work starts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how are you going to make it actionable? And then how are you going to make sure anyone can get the insights, not just if they take an eight-hour video course, <laughs> you know, because I had that. I, oh, it's fine. Just watch my course. And I'd be like, I don't have a day to spend listening to you babble. <laughs> <laughs> so finally got there, I think. It took a long time. How important do you find that marketing attribution is to marketers? And what are you, what are you guys doing about over at HubSpot? Yeah, I mean, obviously attribution has become crucial to marketing. Really, it's been this journey over the past 10 years of, again, marketing kind of came from a historical perspective of just being considered a cost center, purely an expense of like, yeah, well, we got to do some marketing and <laughs> attribution was hand wavy at best. So really, right, you know, when we moved in the digital environment, it took a little while, but starting around, yeah, maybe 10 years ago, this whole movement of true performance-based marketing, really starting to look at marketing as a revenue lever. It, it, it changed the whole perspective on like justifying marketing's existence. But yeah, I mean, key to then being able to play that game really well is understanding which channels, which tactics, which flows, which segments, like really getting as you know granular and as scientific as you can about what's working and what isn't particularly given the fact that none of this stuff stays static. You know, it's like whatever you get that's working beautifully this year, you can pretty much be guaranteed next year. You're going to have to be changing some other things to, you know, keep up with just the evolution of this stuff. 
And to be able to be in that mode of continually experimenting and evolving, you need the attribution to be able to know like which experiments paid off, which ones didn't. Otherwise, yeah, where were we in the uh, example of, you know, driving down the highway, staring at the dashboard instead of looking through the windshield? It's almost like, yeah, I'm driving down the highway and I've just got my eyes closed. I'm not looking at anything. Let me know when I hit something. (laughs) Not a good way to go. Yeah. Or, or taking a, I just want to hear the good news is a lot of time. People don't like hearing the bad news. They're like, I worked hard in this marketing. I spent five grand on this copywriter. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Those emails aren't converting. <laughs> They're very attractive. <laughs> they look nice. No so my, my early years in this space, like the SaaS company that I started with Ion Interactive, we actually started with a landing page platform that was all about A-B testing, which nowadays is considered thoroughly commoditized. But hey, like in 2005, 2006, this was kind of state of the art. And so there would be this game that, you know, we would play uh, at conferences, you know, as we come and we'd bring a bunch of examples of A-B tests from clients, you know, and we'd ask the audience, all right, here's the A, here's the B, show of hands, who thought A won, who shot A? And you know, the truth is like, <laughs> like most of the time, right? It was pretty much random. People would be like, oh yeah, that one definitely. No, actually B won, you know, and it's just, it, it really drove home the point that like, yeah, sure, everybody has an opinion on this. Marketing, marketers perhaps more than others, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sort of part of the discipline is like, oh yeah, I have an opinion on that. But the data is what actually tells the truth of like, what's actually happening? What's causing people to like, you know, become a lead, to convert to becoming a customer, you know, to impact their total lifetime value. It's taken us actually a while to get to a place where we're like, yeah, that's probably the smarter <laughs> smarter approach to this than just saying, oh, I like the way this one looks. We'll go with this one. Shift gears a little bit. Talk about your book. I saw Agile Marketing. I'm an Agile tech guy from the past here. How did you come to, you know, think to apply Agile to marketing? And what's the, like the big differences from the traditional marketing approach to the Agile approach? I think you and I share a similar background here as I sort of came at it from the product development side. But what was interesting is, okay, actually, so this whole A-B testing landing page thing, that's where it really became clear to me because we would work with these clients. In fact, actually, this was a case study. So I can give you the name uh, of the client. So American Greetings had an online e-card business. And they were basically, they, they, they got the idea of running specialized search campaigns leading to specific landing pages and doing that to convert. But it would generally take them about a month to launch a new ad and a new landing page. And so that was the bottleneck on it. And we came and we had our technology platform that actually, from a technical perspective, you know, could dramatically facilitate generating hundreds you know, of landing pages in that time frame. But it was really interesting, the bottleneck, then once you, once you everybody thought the bottleneck was the technology, but the, you know, the moment you put the technology in place to eliminate that, the real bottleneck reveals itself, which there's this sort of very elaborate, you know, review process that people would go through for each one of these. And it just, it, it was so much anticipating what needed to be done, trying to get that absolutely perfectly internally, going through all these different stages, you know, and then eventually we publish it. And only then after that, do we find out, hey, did that one even work? And so it was working with them where they actually started to change their process to embrace a more agile approach to this of feeling really comfortable, like, oh, well, let's iterate, you know, let's get a version of this up now, let's start to see how it goes, we can then iterate on top of that, and so on. 
And I saw that pattern happen again and again with clients, like those who were the most successful with our platform and, and would end up like, I mean, they got incredible, like triple digit increase, a lift on performance over the lifetime of those things. The difference between the clients that were really, really successful and those that still kind of struggled came down to to process. And so, yeah, that's, that's why I became a, yeah. a, a, a fervent advocate, uh, you know, self-interested, like, hey, listen, the only way you're going to be successful with our software yeah. is, you know, if you're able to be agile in how you leverage it. And I started to notice other uh, marketers who were kind of on the cutting edge of that too. Actually, one of them, uh, Mike Volpe, who was the original uh, CMO of uh, HubSpot. He was one of the early advocates for agile marketing in those days too. And so, yeah, small little band of us and felt like, yeah, this is this is the future. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, I learned agile from the creator of the Scrum, uh, Ken Schwaber. It was his first like training tour. And then he'd go out drinking with us after. A lot of fun. He's a fun guy. <laughs> and I would do agile for everything. I'd do agile to manage my internal li- my life, like all the stuff I had going on. Which uh, so I was heavy, heavy. First one to bring it into Motorola phones. Uh, I worked for the Motorola phone division for a long time, and I would always be this approved process omission. They'd have the big waterfall process, which everyone hated dealing with IT because of it. And be like, when am I going to get this? And I'd be like, seven months for anything. <laughs> and then I was just chugging out code, not me. Well, me personally, I was coding too, but my merry band of programmers I'd be like, how the hell are you doing that? And I'd be like, well, we figure we only can figure out the next 30 days. <laughs> We're not trying to pretend we know in six months what's going to happen. So just 30 days and it's the, the project management triangle, scope, time, budget. You just, if you want this triangle to increase, increase something in the inputs. And it worked really well. So I loved it. Absolutely loved it. No, I was just going to say, it is fascinating to this day how much of it was a cultural thing that so many of the defenders of that like really rigid waterfall approach in, in, in marketing as much as anything else were like, well, this is what you need to do to make sure you're delivering a really high quality product. And the truth is, no, that was actually where the myth was, is this thing of having this like, you know, incredibly long chain of activities and things that happen before you get any validation yeah. of, is this even like going to be accurate? Yeah. It, it, people are going to like this as they want it. That is actually a recipe for getting to low quality outcomes. I mean, it might've been extremely precise in getting that low quality outcome, but those who are able to get to a place where they could do that faster experimentation and iteration, you know, and it's not that you were throwing quality out of the door. It's like you had your standards, you did what, you know, I mean, you're doing good work, but it just, you kept that scope small enough that you're like, let's get a little bit of validation for this, mm. you know, and then we can extend it from there. It just, that has always to me been the way to get better quality outcomes. And so those people who like say, oh, well, you know, it's either agile or quality, or what's the other one that drives me nuts that, well, you know, you could do agile or you could have a strategy. I'm like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> this is like another one of these false dichotomies. You're just making this stuff up. You know, I'm doing agile so that I can actually know I am delivering on a strategy, yes. you know, with a much better, like, you know, feedback <laughs> mechanism than, you know, just sitting in a room with a big whiteboard. Yeah. We had, uh, so one time Motorola, we had, uh, I was in the project management applications as ones that I would run. And so they had this, they go, hey, we have all the steps of how a phone is built, 700 steps. And we're going to give you this project. You're going to create this application so we can sign off electronically on all the steps. 
Like, wow, that sounds great. So we build it up, takes a few months. We get it, we build our, the app up agile. We get it ready and we launch it. And the first day I see this crowd, I'm walking in to get to my cube somewhere in my office and the mob of people at my cube. And they're all very angry because <laughs> they were all getting emails from all these processes that they supposedly were doing on a daily basis. And somehow my, I was the, you know, it got routed to me if they were unhappy and they were all like, what is this process? Why am I getting these emails? And I was like, well, according to this person, this is the process and you sign off on it and this and that. And they're like, I've never heard of this thing. <laughs> I don't do this. And furthermore, I read through and this is ridiculous. And I was like, oh, uh, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to frantically put in an opt out so you could opt out of the process. And then the process people were really sad, but the people actually doing the work were like, well, this is the real process. I don't know what this stuff is that made up. So that validation of what it is. And then the speak, I mean, the phones would take forever to get out because of a process that was broken, that people, it, it was all the best meaning and all the steps on paper looked accurate, but somewhere in there was some really bad assumptions, basically, that put yeah. in there. Yeah, the real world has a, a, a way of being a little bit different than, uh, you know, what we uh, put on paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I love the the speed to speed to validation of, of an opinion is fantastic. And you can have an idea meritocracy. It's not about the most important person's idea. It can be like, well, let's just find out the numbers will give us a clue whether you're right or not. I didn't know you're into that. It's cool to stumble across that. So what's uh, what's next for Scott Brinker this year? What are you up to besides um, updating 2,000 icons in the Martech? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not doing that. Obviously, I'm a team. Hopefully not doing yeah, all that. Um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, a lot of great stuff happening in uh, HubSpot uh, world here. Uh, the platform's continuing to open up new extensibility. Every time that happens, you know, it opens up all sorts of new use cases for our partners. Uh, it uh, opens up the door for new partners. So that's, uh, it's, it's going to be a busy year, but I'm really looking forward to that. On the Chief Martech stuff, the topic I've been sort of digging into most lately is kind of a, just a fascination with what, what people call no-code, which actually is a label that to me applies very broadly to a whole set of things. To me, it's almost about like saying there used to be these tasks that you had to be a specialist to do. And now there's becoming these tools that let someone as a generalist actually do a lot of the low end or mid end, you know, use cases for those specialist things. And, you know, some of this is building web pages or, you know, building little web apps or workflows. Uh, some of it's cool content creation capabilities. I mean, even using something like Canva for someone like me who has zero design skills whatsoever, you know, I can go to Canva. I, yeah, kind of looks like a professional, pull this <laughs> together. And I just... I'm really fascinated by this and kind of ties into the whole agile thing because it feels like in this environment where things are constantly changing and one of the most powerful things a marketer can bring to the table is like new ideas and imagination and a willingness to experiment. But we've been constrained on, yeah, I can come up with the idea, you know, but how much work is it? to like actually turn that from an idea into something I can test, uh, even if it's yep. just the MVP version of it, is it even doable? And to me, this whole no-code movement that's gaining so much momentum, what's exciting about it is I think it's dramatically increasing the menu of things that generalist marketers can say, oh, I have an idea, I'd like to experiment with this, and they can just do it. Anyway, so I, I, I expect I will be spending my nights and weekends for the next few months uh, continuing to dig deeply into that whole universe. That HubSpot extensibility, I saw that now you can have a custom object that'll trigger workflows. That's really cool. Really cool. 
we're going to start pushing up LTV and other tidbits up there so that they can oh, trigger things for our users. Link back and then in, it can in-app, you know, to contact you, but see their lifetime value, all the different attribution points, and then link out to, you know, that campaign. All you know, it triggered a flood of ideas that just like crushed our roadmap. Our product manager's <laughs> like, oh no. <laughs> He's happy and sad. <laughs> I just like <laughs> well, I apologize. I'm now just super happy, like hearing these ideas of where you guys are headed. That's gonna be amazing. Yeah, yeah. We're super pumped. No, Q2. It's Q2. We're doing uh in some in-system integration. So we're super pumped right around when this goes live. So Anyway, thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. It was fascinating. Time flew by for me. A lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. All right. Take it easy. Bye.